When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Andrew Porter, author of the short story collection, The Disappeared. I'm very interested in kind of creating a close connection with the reader and taking the reader through an emotional experience. And I find that the first person really kind of lends itself to that for me. We'll be back with Andrew Porter after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. When you donate to First Draft, you're joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that is committed to sharing the insights and challenges of the writing life. And let's be honest, there's so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free to you. But it is not without expense to me in hard costs and in labor. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours an episode. There's also equipment and subscriptions to interview platforms and sound transcripts and editing software and hosting services for the sound and a website for the archive. And those things added up are not cheap. And all of this, this whole entire colossal effort takes a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition every week. And please understand, I am the entire show from start to finish. I am the editor, the interviewer, the reader, the researcher, the staff. Sometimes the staff doesn't perform as well as I'd like, but I am the only person performing. So why not consider supporting a woman with a dream to share literary wisdom from some of the world's best writers in a podcast platform? I would say with the number of episodes I've produced, which is actually more than in the archive, so more than 400, my track record is pretty stellar. And please beat the odds of having to listen to this message seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash first draft writers any amount is welcome but for six dollars a month you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis please stay tuned at the end of the show i'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear and please rate the show on itunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe and thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today right now in this moment and on to the show My interview today is with Andrew Porter, author of the short story collection, The Theory of Light and Matter, which won the Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction. 
His novel, In Between Days, was a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers selection and an indie-bound Indie Next selection. His stories have appeared in One Story, Plowshares, The Colorado Review, The Missouri Review, and The Three Penny Review, among other publications. He is currently a professor of English and director of the creative writing program at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. His new short story collection, The Disappeared, contains tales of loss and separation, displacement and grief. Disappearances of many kinds, literal and figurative, haunt the stories as lives and loves are cut short, youth vanishes and relationships sever. We began the discussion with me asking Andrew Porter this question. I saw some themes throughout that I do want to talk about, but I wonder if you wrote these stories over a long period of time, because I know that they were published in different books and if you sort of real in different journals, if you realized over time what the common thread was for you, or if it was just something you knew was obsessing you, some of these things. And then maybe if you want to name them. I realized probably about halfway through the, the writing of these stories, kind of what the, some of the, um, connected elements would be. I wrote them probably over about five years or so. Um, from the first one I wrote was the, actually the first story in the book, Austin. And then um, when I wrote that story, it kind of opened up um, kind of, I guess, avenues of possibility in terms of other stories. Um, I had never written anything set in San Antonio before um, or, or, or Austin, where which is kind of nearby San Antonio, but this this area where I live. Um, and so it was the first time I kind of felt comfortable writing about that world. And it was also the first time I felt comfortable writing about characters who had children, which is kind of a theme in the book, um, and characters kind of at the stage in life where I was at that time. Um, and so I saw, I saw the potential to write other stories set in a similar world. And so I just started writing um, a bunch of stories that were kind of variations um, on the, the themes introduced in that that first story, Austin. And I saw them as just kind of like riffing off that story a little bit. Um, and, and, and I didn't know where it was going, but I sensed that there was something that I was building. Um, and then about partway through that process, um, I started to notice, you know, okay, all of these stories are about characters kind of in their 30s or 40s, mostly in their 40s. Um, they're all about um, some type of disappearance or absence, right? Um, in, in some way, metaphorically or, or literally. And I also noticed that they were all set in either San Antonio or Austin, that they kind of were existing in a similar world um, geographically. And so I decided to kind of lean into those connective elements rather than try to kind of bury it. And I thought, um, okay, I'm going to kind of use these these things as kind of like constraints um, in a way, like I, I wanted whatever I wrote going forward to kind of contain these elements. And um, and at that point, I was thinking this this could potentially be a book. Um, and so, yeah, so, that, so so it was probably about halfway through that I, I really recognized these elements. Um, and 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 yeah, so that that's kind of how it happened. What do you think on like a, a deeper, maybe existential or spiritual level or psychological level was going on for you when you sort of realized this idea of, of disappearance or things lost? What do you say when you think about that within your own dialogue? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, a lot of my life kind of up until the point I was 40 kind of felt like um, an accumulation of things, right? You know, I was accumulating degrees. I was accumulating jobs. I, 
um, you know, I, I got married, uh, I bought a house, um, you know, it felt like um, everything was about kind of adding more to my life. Um, and then, you know, shortly after my children were born, um, which was in my early 40s, um, I started to feel the opposite. I started to notice that things in my life were disappearing, <laughs> both metaphorically and literally. But, you know, people who um, a lot of, you know, people I knew here in San Antonio, um, people started getting divorced, moving away. There were um, some some deaths of, of people um, close to me in, in, in my life. Um, and then kind of beyond that, also just kind of psychologically, I think, when you have kids, like a lot of sort of your sense of, of who you are before disappears, right? Um, in a lot of ways. And, and for me, I had always been a kind of writer who was just kind of on his own. Um, writing was the center of my world and everything kind of revolved around that. And that kind of identity started to disappear um, because I didn't have well, I mean, I didn't have any time to write, <laughs> basically, with, with young kids. Um, but but beyond that, I also didn't know what to be writing about, because I was so sort of overwhelmed with the experience of, of having young children um, and, and just kind of the way, all the many ways my life had changed. Um, other things were disappearing. You know, um, I had less free time. I had less time with friends. I had, um, less time with, with my wife. Um, you know, a lot of the kind of things in my life, um, that, that, that I'd been used to, um, were, were disappearing. So I, I've thought about this a little bit and, and those are some of the things that I think were informing this kind of general feeling of things around you disintegrating a little bit. Um, and, 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 uh, and I think that when I wrote the story, Austin, which is the first story in the book, that was my first, is the first time I wrote about that feeling without actually knowing kind of what that feeling was yet. Um, and I just felt like I was onto something with, with that, that I wanted to keep exploring and writing about. I'd like you to read a paragraph from that because I think it is a good, not maybe summary, but just foreshadowing of so many things that happened in the book. But first we can talk a little bit about this story, Austin. So you have this young man who is getting together in a party at night around a bonfire with people that he used to hang out with a lot, but doesn't see as much um, anymore because they've kind of gone in different directions. Some have kids, some don't, um, some you know, careers have gone in different directions and there's some old, you know, the old friends getting together, they're telling stories and it's actually kind of a story within a story because when your narrator is sitting around, they, one of the characters tells a story about something that happened to the other character about a break-in in his house. The person who um, broke in was shot and they were just kind of like saying, well, what would you do if it was you, if a teenager broke into your house, what would you do? At the same time, his wife, Laura, is kind of having some nervous breakdown type of activities. She's just not that um, stable mentally and they, they have kids. And I think it's just that time of life that is so destabilizing. And in the middle of the party, he, they ask him this question, kind of what would you do? Or he's posing it to himself. What, what would I have done? And then he leaves to go get a drink, but they leave the party and he never comes back and he never really has to face the answer to that question. And on the top of page 11, I'm wondering if you can read that first paragraph. Outside, I could hear the occasional sound of a car passing, young people shouting things into the air. When did I become the person who listened to such sounds and not the person who made them? These were the types of questions I often asked myself late at night as I sat there in that chair, sipping on my drink, feeling at peace, but also somehow adrift 
somehow disconnected from things, as if I'd been untethered from some larger purpose. There is always the sense of a shadow looming just beyond the wall, the hum of a greater absence. There was always that sense that something I'd once owned had been lost or left behind, abandoned. How could I explain such feelings to my wife? I closed my eyes and returned to the Chopin. It was a different melody now, a nocturne, delicate, lyrical, soft. I felt like that paragraph encapsulated so much of what was happening in this whole collection. I'm wondering if that makes sense to you and if you want to say anything about writing that paragraph or even reading it back now, what it feels like. Yeah, it is a paragraph that very much captures kind of the spirit of the book and that emotion that I was trying to write from. And so, as I mentioned, when I wrote this story, it felt like it opened up something in my mind, um, you know, a, a way of kind of writing about this. And and this was one of my first attempts to kind of write about that feeling of, um, right, of things disappearing, of feeling somewhat adrift, um, feeling disconnected. You know, I think when, when you have, you know, children and you're kind of going through that phase of those early years where you're feeling sort of overwhelmed, um, often, I think in a marriage, like you're experiencing these feelings at the same time, but kind of separately, right? You're you're going through your own <laughs> experiences, right? And I think what he feels in that moment is that kind of inability to kind of express this these feelings to his wife because he doesn't completely understand them himself. He just feels them, right? Um, and, and I think the story is partly about a marriage where, um, both the husband and the wife are kind of going through very similar types of experiences of feeling anxiety, feeling overwhelmed, feeling exhausted, feeling frightened, um, you know, um, but, but kind of going through those experiences on their own, right. Even though they're, they're raising the children together and, and kind of, um, even though the marriage is intact and, and, and everything, it's, there's a kind of sense of, um, them both being sort of, um, on their own in a way. Because this was the story that kind of kicked off a lot of these thematic ideas in many of the other stories, I wonder if you ever go back and mine stories for almost like black holes that you can then enter. Like if you go back and say, oh my God, there's in this one scene, there's a window open and what's in that window or in this one scene that you just read this, these thoughts, like what else is in there that could open up to its own kind of fractal universe that could be its own story. Do you ever do that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I really see, um, you know, when I'm working on a series of stories, I kind of see them often as exploring very similar things in different ways. And I use the word kind of riff, but I, I think of that a lot of times if I'm kind of trying to write it right around a particular emotion and I'll just approach it in different ways from different angles with like slight variations. And so that's why like a number of the stories um, in the collection are kind of um, mirrors of each other in certain ways, right? Um, like uh, like a story like Rhinebeck, which is about kind of a couple where um, a third person is kind of connected to the marriage, you know, that 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 kind of dynamic is also in a story like Vines or a story like um, Jimena, you know, like those, all of those stories are kind of like variations on, on a theme, right? Of this kind of triangulation, you know, um, of, of relationships. And so, you know, that, that is something, I don't know that I do it consciously so much as I kind of feel myself going back into a similar territory 
and doing it in a different way. Um, yeah, uh, I've done that my whole writing life. You know, I, I would go through periods where I would kind of write like brother sister stories or something, <laughs> and I would just keep kind of going back. And I would take something from a previous story and and an element of it, and then use that as kind of you know, the, the, the thing I wanted to explore in the next story. Right. But they're all kind of in dialogue with each other, if that makes sense. I noticed when you read that paragraph again, that I didn't really think about when I read the book was it had the word nocturnal in it. And when I was taking notes after I read your collection, I kind of realized that not exclusively by any means, but I felt like a majority of the conversations that happened between characters happened at night. That's really interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, but it's true. There, there are, um, yeah. I mean, now that you're mentioning that, that's really true. Um, I guess kind of my explanation for that might be that, you know, that's, when I think of like my own marriage, like that's when my wife <laughs> talk a lot. And, and, um, just because the day is, is busy and filled with lots of things to do and, and lots of chaos, but, um, it's usually at night and particularly during those years when our children were really young, like, you know, when they would, I remember like putting them down, uh, to sleep and then, you know, just, opening a bottle of wine and finally getting to like talk to each other. <laughs> and so I think that um, that's maybe where a lot of that was coming from was that those were kind of periods of um, kind of calm or stillness. And one of the few kind of periods of calm and stillness in, in our lives were, were kind of the evenings, like an hour, having the hour or so. Um, kind of like described in that paragraph, the hour and so before before you you fall asleep to just kind of um, be together and talk and and kind of um, share what's going on. I think too that in your stories they are not hours of peace, like they they are they are hours of reckoning, like reckoning with one's own. Um, shortcomings or fears or the um, areas of the relationship that aren't really working. And I was just thinking as I was reading that about the energy of night and how it can be like fun and dynamic. Like you say in that first paragraph, like why aren't I the one out? Why aren't I the one out there making the sounds? Like why aren't I the one at the rave dancing? Um, but at, then at the same time, it's like we somehow make it through the day and all the things that are unsettling within us just kind of purge out in the evenings. Right. Yeah. I mean, and often, right. It's a period of kind of venting, you know, if something's been building up all day or finally like talking about that thing that happened that day, that's really gotten under your skin. Right. Um, and, uh, so it becomes that as well, right? You know, and 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 I think um, that's why a lot of the kind of, as you were saying, a lot of the kind of confrontations that happen in the story also happen at night, right? Um, and and that's when when some of the greatest tension arises as well. I mean, even if it on some level was unconscious. I mean, it makes sense, obviously, for parents, of course, raising kids that night is one happen. Even when you don't have kids, you go to work all day, you talk over dinner, it becomes early evening, late evening. But it's also something I think for fiction writers to think about, like what, how do you match the time of day with the energy of what's going on in your story? I don't know if you ever talk about that as a teacher. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I have actually, but it's really interesting, you know, um, now that you're mentioning it, because it's really true, right? Like there are conversations you have that are morning conversations, and then there are conversations you have that you would only have at night, right? Um, and uh, and it's really true, like the time of day has a big effect on kind of the feel of a particular type of conversation, right? Um, like a morning fight is going to feel different than a nighttime fight, right? They're going to be often different types of fights, right? Or an afternoon fight. Um, and, and same with, with 
other types of conversations. Um, it's really interesting to think about. I, I haven't talked about that, but maybe now I will. <laughs> I think also for craft, what could be interesting is putting the wrong kind of fight in the wrong time. Like that um, it can add maybe even more tension, you know, that the morning fight that happens at night or the afternoon fight that happens in the morning might bring extra outside tension to the situation that you don't have to name, but that their reader can feel. Right. H having to have a particular, just because of the circumstances, having to have a, a conversation that's maybe a more natural nighttime conversation, having to have, have that in the morning, right. Because of whatever circumstance could be interesting, right. Kind of forcing the characters to, to almost have an unnatural type of conversation. Yeah. There's a lot of wine in your book. <laughs> well, I associate that also with that period of my life. <laughs> yeah, maybe you uh, can get a sponsorship via Vineyard for your book. <laughs> but I mean, I think that was like for those years. I mean, it's interesting, like that's not like a, a ritual anymore for, for my wife and, and myself, but it, but it was during those years because I think that they were just... So, it was so overwhelming and we would really have like about maybe one hour from when the kids go down to where we're just so exhausted and had to go to sleep. And it's like, we just wanted to have a glass of wine and talk or watch a show or something, but it was kind of like how we came down. Right. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it was, um, and, and in some ways also kind of a remnant from an earlier time, like, like before kids, right? You know, it was kind of the the one time a day when we could kind of um, be our younger selves a little bit. And um, yeah, so so that's probably explains why there's a lot of wanting <laughs> in those stories. Many of the stories, I, I might venture to say all, but I don't, I don't want to. I'm not positive. Um, our first person told from a male point of view who is someone in their forties. And I'm assuming, at least in this collection, that you might have a preference for first person or maybe it brings you deeper in in some way. But can you talk about that point of view? Yeah, it's interesting because um, my first book, um, my first book of stories is also all of those stories are first person. And in some ways, I wanted this collection to be a kind of companion to that collection or a continuation or in dialogue, it's it's a it's a very different type of book, but I feel like the 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 tone of it is similar. The 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 style of narration, the kind of reflective mode, um, and so that was another thing I was thinking about in writing it. Is like rather than saying I want to do something completely different, I I wanted a book that was a kind of in conversation with the first book, um, and so. I will say, I mean, I've written a lot of third person um, short stories. My my novel is third person. I, I like to write in the third person, but I think with this book, um, you know, uh, again, I kind of ended up with a certain number of stories. And as I was winnowing it down, the third person stories just started falling to the side because they didn't feel quite the same. And they weren't, um, I don't know, again, you know, I, I think that I was going for a particular feel um, and the first person just kind of lent itself to that. And I like writing in the first person in the short story form. You know, I, I'm very interested in kind of creating a close connection with the reader and taking the reader through an emotional experience. And I find that the first person really kind of lends itself to that for me a, a little better. I, I always feel with the third person, there's a little bit of distance there that you have to kind of overcome. And so I, I think that's one of the reasons that, that, that I did that. Do you feel at all that when you're writing in first person versus third, that it's a more embodied experience? And what, what I kind of mean like that, this question could be totally going down the wrong 
alley, maybe it's not true, but that when you write in first person, you're almost like inhabiting the character that you're writing about, like an actor. And when you're writing in third person, you're almost seeing the character more like a director. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's one of the big things that's appealing to me. And I talk about this with my students when we're talking about point of view, I, I talk about, you know, in in, in Greek, um, the word persona means mask. And, and that's what you're doing in the first person is you're, you're kind of assuming this persona, you're putting on a mask like an actor might, and you're becoming this character and embodying them. And um, I find that really pleasurable. Like I, I, it's one of my, the things that I like most about fiction writing is just kind of not being yourself, being this character for that period of time when you're writing. And um, yeah, so that that is a big part of the appeal for me, for sure. In many of your stories, your characters are parents who have been challenged by having children. They're either challenged in their relationship or just challenged with parenting. And in, in one in particular, they're confronted by their child. They are, um, their flaws are made visible because their child who's six <laughs> can see them. And um, that brings a certain kind of vulnerability to these men that you're writing about because it, it's mostly men. I mean, there's women responding to them, but your main characters are all men. And just wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. I mean, and that, that is another kind of reality of parenting. It just, and it happens more and more the older thing. <laughs> they see more and more of your flaws. Right. Um, and, and, and uh, yeah, I wanted to write, to write about that as well. I, I did want to show, um, you know, the, those moments of vulnerability, um, those kind of flawed moments in parenting Um you know, I wanted to show a lot of different models of different types of parents and characters who had different relationships to the idea of being parents. Um, even some of the characters who don't have children, um, the idea of parenthood is kind of um, something that's on their mind and a reality in their life, um, something that that they think about. And so, you know, I think that... Um, this was certainly something I wanted to be a big theme in the story, but the stories, but I, but I think, um, yes, those moments of vulnerability. Um, I mean, those are things that all parents face, like moments when your child sees a flaw in you or kind of calls you out on something or remembers something that, um, that that you once said or whatever it may be right i mean these are kind of um these are these are very real moments that that all parents have to face and i wanted i wanted to show parents grappling with these types of moments right um having to confront themselves through the eyes of of their children right yeah i mean you you talked about in the very beginning about just being in your forties and that most of your characters are in the forties, but it's clear that these characters are still very much growing up. Yeah. And, and you see also kind of different versions of arrested development with some, (laughs) some of them, I mean, some of them are really holding on kind of desperately to their, their younger identities. Right. And really kind of almost unwilling to, to, to move on. Right. Or, or accept the, the reality of aging. Um, and then you have others who, who, who have, but, but even those characters are still growing, growing up. Right. Um, and that's something again, that, that, um, I wanted to show, you know, that, that, um, that, that process of growing, um, those issues of identity, right. Those don't go away when you have children suddenly, right. You know, that the, these things, continue um throughout your life and and I wanted to show characters who were who are struggling to still kind of grow up even as they have all of these new responsibilities in their life yeah I think many of your main characters are just so lost whether they're married or not married or have kids or don't have kids they just a lot of them are they just don't have a defined career 
They don't understand this moment that's happening with their child or with their spouse. They don't know how to be there for their spouse. Or maybe they've been an accessory to someone else's relationship or they're using other people around them in their lives to try to make their relationships whole. So there's uh, this really large sense of um, a lack of, of inner knowing, like cushioned with that loss from childhood, that loss from being young, um, that loss of just being so scared in the world at that age when you just don't know what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And I I mean, I think that's a lot of people experience that in their forties, right? It's, it's a kind of, it's a period you're not kind of in that final act yet, (laughs) you know, or or not, you know, um, you're you're not kind of, um, you're kind of in that middle chapter of life and you're, you're, you're trying to kind of reconcile things from your, from your youth and from your twenties and, you know, and, and you're also kind of trying to figure out what you still want to do, um, what you want the rest of your life to be like. Um, there's a, there's a reckoning too, right. You know, that, that happens naturally, I think, um, in, in, in your forties. Right. And, and so, um, it's a really complicated time, I think. And so it lends itself to, to moments of feeling lost and um, confused and, and um, uncertain. Um, and, and I wanted to show characters having to confront that in a lot of different ways. Like some of them are, it's, it's their professional lives, right? That, that, that's the source of unhappiness or, um, you know, the, the, what's making them feel lost. In other cases, it's their relationships. In other cases, it's, um, you know, their, their, um, their relationships with their children. Right. Um, but a lot of them are, um, confronting, um, any number of, of kind of, you know, issues that are making them feel, feel somewhat directionless in, in their life. Yeah. I think too that there's this idea in many of your stories that when they try to get back together with their old friends, it just doesn't work. It just, they they don't have as much in common, but you also have a story that you mentioned earlier called Rhinebeck. So in Rhinebeck, I think is an example of a character who is really holding on to old friends. I mean, they're all holding on to each other. It's, it's a really a triad. It's Richard, Rebecca and David, and they all went to college together and they left um, New York City and moved up to Rhinebeck and Rebecca and David got married and owned a restaurant. And they really, you get the sense that they can't really have their relationship without Richard. He comes into the restaurant. He is a, a, a strong support for both of them and they really have this really strong bond. And Richard never could commit. He didn't have really a girlfriend or a wife. He was just part of their, their unit. And they're talking about moving to Austin and opening a restaurant. And there's some question in the beginning if he'll go with them because they are just such a unit. But as the story goes on, we see fractures in the relationship between Rebecca and David. We learn about that Richard and Rebecca had a moment in college before Um, David and Rebecca got together. And when they talk about moving, there's this sense that on one hand, they have to get away from Richard to save their marriage. And on the other hand, they might not be able to save it without him. And, you know, he has to make a decision about what he wants to do in the end. But you, you often maybe think, or maybe I mistakenly think that if you make it with friends, like from your twenties to your forties, that you're going to make it forever. And that might not be the case in this story. I mean, there's more going on besides that, but just wanted to give you some space to talk about that story more. Yeah. I mean, that was a, that's a kind of interesting type of relationship that, that I've observed, um, you know, kind of throughout my, my twenties and thirties and forties you see, and, and, and I've, I've both been the person 
kind of in the relationship where there's been a kind of third person attached. And then I've also been the, the kind of third wheel character <laughs> on another, uh, in, in, in another relationship. But, but the idea that there, like a lot of couples will have a kind of close friend attached to the couple that they're both kind of close with separately. And, and that's the relationship I really want to explore this idea of both of them feeling having kind of separate relationships with this this friend but also feeling that in many ways he was what kept them together right that their relationship kind of worked because of his presence right um and so it's a really interesting kind of codependency um and you know they they're, they're having to face the fact that they need to either um break up with him essentially, <laughs> or, um, at the same time, you know, they, they fear what will happen if, if, if he's no longer in their life to their own marriage, right? Will they be able to have the same type of happy marriage without him being kind of daily part of their lives? So I just found that kind of codependency really, th those types of situations really kind of fascinating because I think they really do exist. Um, but again, that's something that also, as you were saying, like that happens in your 40s is that friends from college, right? Those relationships really get tested during that period. People, you know, friendships from your 20s, right? Um, you kind of either make it through. And if you do make it through like into your 40s and late 40s and 50s, like you're pretty much going to be friends for life probably. But but it's a kind of, again, it, there's a testing of those relationships because people's lives change pretty radically during that period, you know, in, in a lot of cases, right there. Um, and, and, and sometimes friendships can't really withstand, you know, the, those changes. And so I wanted this to be, again, this was a couple who kind of, they'd reached a certain point and they wanted to make a move for their marriage. They wanted to also make a professional, one last kind of professional move, right? Um, and this was now going to force them to confront this this kind of strange relationship they've been in, you know, since for, for many, many years. When you were done writing that story, did it make you think differently about the questions that you went in with? Yeah, I mean, that story was one of the hardest to write. Um, that took me several years to write, and I wrote, um, I wrote probably about 70 pages or so of content about this relationship. And I wrote it in a kind of nonlinear way. And I was just exploring all the different periods of this relationship. And I wrote far more scenes than kind of made it into that story. Um, and I had the hardest time kind of knowing how to end it. Um, and so, you know, I think, right, the, the, the opening of a story always kind of introduces some questions and, and your ending has to in some way confront those questions. And I wasn't quite sure how things were going to be left, um, except that the more that I worked on it, and I guess I, this is a bit of a spoiler, but the more that I worked on it, the more I realized that I that they were th this this wasn't going to be tenable long term. Like they that they they were going to have there was going to have to be a natural break, and it was probably going to be the healthiest thing for all of them, right? And that they all, on some subconscious level, maybe realized that this was something that needed to happen, right? Um, and, and so that kind of breaking up had to occur, but it took me the longest time to, to figure out how to end it and to figure out how I was going to do that in a way that felt, um, felt satisfying and felt true. Um, you know, I wanted it to not be a neat, a neat ending. I wanted there to be some kind of unresolved elements, some unresolved questions, um, I wanted it to still feel a little bit kind of messy. Um, so it was really hard. That that story was really hard for me. <laughs> Do you feel any of those similar feelings about the collection? Not necessarily that it was hard to write for years, and but just that you came in with certain 
ideas. I mean, you said in the beginning of our conversation that about halfway into writing a bunch of these stories, you realized kind of what was obsessing you and what was interesting to you. And I'm wondering if by the time you really collected all the stories you wanted to put in there, if you had learned something along the way about this time of life or about writing that made you feel like you were in a different place, maybe mentally or spiritually from when you began. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, it it really helped me get through this period. You know, I think the process of writing these stories like made me feel better as a human being. (laughs) Like I just, it it was kind of cathartic, I think, to write about these things, but but I think also, right, I mean, um, that that story, and again, a little bit of a spoiler, but this, the opening story, Austin kind of ends by raising this question, like, where have you gone, right? Where the narrator has to kind of confront that, what's happened to his younger self, what's happened to this, um, his, his sense of identity, right? Um, now that he's entered this new phase in his life. And, and I felt like, a lot of the stories in the collection were attempting to kind of address that question in different ways. Um, and, and, and I felt like as I was assembling it, I wanted the stories to kind of come closer and closer to providing answers to that question. And so as we get toward the end of the book, Jimena and the final story that disappeared, I think, you have characters at the ends of these stories who are kind of accepting the fact that some of the answers to these questions are just like, some of these questions are unanswerable, right? And um, in some ways, um, you know, these disappearances, um, these mysteries are never going to be fully answered, um, but that nevertheless, you need to kind of, you know, uh, you know, move forward in your life and kind of embrace the the relationships you have and kind of move on in some way from these questions. Um, and and so I do feel like the book has, I hope that kind of arc to it. Um, I hope that by the time readers get to the end of the book, and I know people don't always read short story collections in order, but assuming people read them, read it in order that by the end of the book, they feel that they've been brought to a place of some recognition or realization. Um, um, and, and, and that's, it felt that way to me also in, in writing it and kind of, I think assembling it um, in that way was kind of the final part of that process for me. Do you read story collections in order? <laughs> I don't always, I have to admit. Um, I, I, I do often jump around, but, but I, my feeling is that even if you don't read a collection in order that, that the arc of the collection, you still feel that, you know, you, you know, that you kind of sense, because you're aware of where different stories are in the book. So even if you read them out of order, by the end of the experience of reading the book, you can still often feel the arc of the book, right? When you think of all the stories together. And so I, I feel like it's, it's still important, you know, even though you know that some readers are just not going to read things in order. I notice you also have a lot of characters, mostly women, mostly wives, sleeping on couches. Yeah, um, I I think, again, that was drawing from kind of my experiences when our our children were young. I think we both slept on the couch a lot, Um, you know, uh, just because, again, you would kind of, it would be the end of the day. And you would, you know, have a couple of sips of wine and you would lie back on the couch. And the next thing you knew, you, knew you, you were waking up and it was um, three in the morning and you'd fallen asleep on the couch. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think that was also kind of, again, a kind of too, I think, on some level, a metaphor for for this period where you're, you're like, um, I don't know, I mean, you're... you're you're not sleeping in the places you used to sleep, right? Um, you're kind of in the trenches and you're kind of taking, you, you're, you're falling asleep wherever you can. Um, 
And I think too of like my own life in periods where like, I mean, there was a period where we would all, I have two children and we would all often sleep in like different rooms, different nights. <laughs> and you just, one night you'd find yourself sleeping in your son's bed and he would be sleeping, you know, in his sister's room. And, you know, it just, um, it felt like, uh, there was just a period in our life where it was like that. And so I don't know. I think that that's probably why those images were in, in, um, in the stories a lot. It also feels kind of like an interstitial space, especially at night. It's like not where you're supposed to be, but you're just kind of moving between these worlds and it makes sense. Yeah. Right. And that's, and you're kind of, in a way it's you're kind of um right in in a a pot you're kind of stuck between those worlds when you're sleeping in that place right you're you're and it is it's a kind of unnatural place for you to be but it it's it is right kind of an in-between place can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer yes um i i'm gonna read from um the, the final paragraph of a story called Pet Milk by Stuart Dybeck. And this is from his collection, The Coast of Chicago, which I was thinking about a lot when I was writing this book. Um, and uh, to, to give a little context, you have a, a kind of young couple who's recently um, uh, graduated from college and they're kind of that year out of college and dating, but realizing that their lives are going to take them in, in different directions. And um, they've had some drinks and are coming home on the L train in Chicago and kind of kissing on the train. And this is just a description of, of that. The train was breaking a little from express speed as it did each time it passed a local station. I could see blurred faces on the long wooden platform watching us pass businessmen glancing up from folded newspapers, women clutching purses and shopping bags. I could see the expression on each face momentarily arrested as we flashed by. A high school kid in shirt sleeves, maybe 16, with books tucked under one arm and a cigarette in his mouth, caught sight of us. And in that instant before he disappeared, he grinned and started to wave. Then he was gone, and I turned from the window back to Kate, forgetting everything, the passing stations, the glowing late sky, even the sense of missing her. But that arrested wave stayed with me. It was as if I were standing on that platform with my school books and a smoke on one of those endlessly accumulated afternoons after school, when I stood almost outside of time, simply waiting for a train, and I thought how much I'd love, I'd have loved seeing someone like us streaming by. And so, you know, that, that, um, in that st story, you have that, you know, that kind of character who's catching a glimpse of like a younger version of themselves and someone else. And that's a lot of what, you know, I think this book is about is, characters kind of um having to confront um younger versions of of themselves and 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 um i'm very interested in that that type of idea and and i think um that that paragraph is a kind of example of something that an idea that i find really fascinating can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or was something you liked? Yeah, this is, this is, um, I'll explain why this was, was tricky after read it, but this is from the final story, um, the disappeared, um, and I'll read it and then I'll just kind of explain why I chose it. As I stood out on the balcony beside the studio where I teach, my worried students staring out at me through the glass window, Antoinette went over everything she knew, how Daniel had been missing for almost 48 hours, how the last contact she'd had with him directly was the morning of his last solo excursion 
a phone call he'd made for her from his motel room in Yucca Valley and how the search and rescue mission had so far turned up nothing, not even a footprint or a water bottle or an item of clothing from the trail he'd been hiking on. All they found was his Subaru, untouched, parked in the Cottonwood Visitor Center near the trailhead to the 49 Palms Oasis Trail, his cell phone locked in the glove box. She then explained that the main reason she'd called me was because she knew I was one of Daniel's closest friends, that he talked about me all the time, and that she thought I'd want to know. She also said that a group of his Austin friends, as well as his family from Houston, were getting together that weekend to share information and have a kind of prayer vigil. If I wanted to join them, she said, I was welcome. And so um, the writing of that paragraph wasn't necessarily that difficult, but the story was difficult for me um, in, in, in certain ways. And, and in the early drafts of the story, um, it's about a kind of character, as that paragraph implies, a guy whose friend goes missing on a on a hiking trail in in, in Joshua Tree, and um, and is never found. And in the early drafts of that story, um, I had the the character, the friend, not go missing, but but actually die of of cancer, and so. Um, it was a much more kind of final type of disappearance. And it was a very clear disappearance. There was no question what had happened to him. And it just never felt right to me with that situation. And I wanted it, I realized to be a kind of more open-ended, unresolved type of disappearance, because I, I think that the, the experience of, um, I mean, I think when someone dies, it's it's a certain type of grieving, but when someone just disappears and you never really know what's happened to them, I don't think you get the same type of closure there. And I wanted the book to end with a story where there was not that kind of neat closure, right? Where things were still a mystery, still somewhat unresolved. Um, it felt important to me, you know, that the book end in that way. And so I... Uh, it took me a long time to kind of come around to a, a different type of situation. And so a lot of the story I was able to keep because it was still about grieving and it was, you know, and so forth. But it was, um, I, you know, I, I, I wanted to change that plot point. And so that paragraph was one of the ones I, I changed um, to kind of incorporate the new storyline. Where do you write? I write in my bedroom, kind of looking out through windows on my backyard. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, I mostly hang out with my kids <laughs> when I'm not writing. But if I have free time, um, I still love to go to a coffee shop and read. I, I love to go to art galleries by myself and wander around. Um, those are things I, I love to do. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My wife. Um, she's always been my first reader, at least as long as we've been together. And um, she gives me very decisive um, answer, you know, kind of uh, assessments of whatever I've written. It's, 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 she doesn't mess around. It's just very like either this is done or the ending doesn't work or it's, it's very clear. Uh, and, and always correct. <laughs> How have you dealt with rejection? As a young writer, I was, I, I, I did not deal with it well at all. I was very sensitive, um, kind of ridiculously sensitive. Um, but at this point in my life, um, and for many years now, you know, rejection really doesn't phase me. It's, 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 it's so woven into the fabric of, of the writing life. Um, you know, it, 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 it doesn't have any impact, but as a young writer, that was a different situation. <laughs> what is your favorite word? Um, luminous, um, or really anything with that, you know, like illuminated or lucent, you know, this with, with light in it, but I, I love the word luminous. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing this time with me. I'm so appreciative. 
Thank you so much. This has been an absolute delight. I really, I've been looking forward to this and it was just a pleasure talking to you. If you like today's show with Andrew Porter, author of the short story collection that disappeared, check out my interview with Antonia Nelson on her collection, Funny Once. We talked about fiction as a dream, being possessed with a story idea, and how teaching makes her a better writer. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned at First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Mona Simpson, Abraham Verghese, and Sebastian Berry. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.